Open up your Bibles to Jeremiah 31 as we come back to a deep, deep dive looking at an incredibly rich portion of Scripture, although uh, an unfamiliar portion to way too many people. It's one of the most important texts in all of Scripture, certainly the most important that Jeremiah ever wrote himself. It's a section of Scripture dealing with the new covenant, the new covenant, which if you don't know much about, you should, because every time you take communion, you may remember Jesus says that when we take of the cup, we take it and we do it in remembrance of the new covenant. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So there's few things that you would find which are more central to Christianity and certainly they give more context to why Jesus died than the new covenant. And so it's vital that you and I understand this chapter. It's vital that we work through it for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of salvation, for the sake of our own edification, our own proclamation, our understanding of the truth. But of course, one of the issues when you come to the Old Testament is there's a general lack of familiarity. Christians don't spend an incredible amount of time in the Old Testament. When they do, it's often very confusing stuff for them. And when you come to chapters like Jeremiah 30 and 31, it is unfamiliar territory. So what we have been doing and, and trying to do over the last four, four or five weeks is, is kind of take it all in at, uh, at the, uh, an appropriate level of depth, going all the way from chapter 30 through 31, because these two uh, chapters are sort of combined together in uniform fashion with nine poems or nine poems and, and uh, prosaic sections, every one of them marked off by the same introductory formula, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord. You see it again and again throughout these two chapters. And so we really understand that if you're going to understand the, 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 the new covenant, the best way to understand it, obviously, is within its context. It's within what everything Jeremiah has to say in this couple of chapters that we have come to know as the book of consolation. Now, someone said to me after a couple of weeks ago, whenever I was preaching in this section, uh, they said to me afterward, didn't you just preach that message last week? And I know they were joking. Um, that's all right, sweetie. I love you anyway. Um, but... What they were getting at is something very true of the observation in this text, that it does have a lot of repetition in it. And that's intentional. It's intentional because uh, Jeremiah is giving us in very poetic form a message that he is kind of spiraling down into, circling back on the same themes over and over again, themes of judgment, themes of suffering, themes of anguish, while also talking about themes of restoration and themes of rebuilding and themes of celebration. And so as you read through these chapters, you find that he's touching on these same things over and over and over again. Now, when he writes this, he's writing to a group of people who were dealing with despair. They were dealing with devastation. You might say that they were grappling with disappointment, but that would be too light a language. It was much, much worse than that. This is an audience that he's writing to who had lost everything. Their nation had been attacked 
by, uh, by a brutal foreign power. Their city had been destroyed. Their homes had been burned to the ground. Everything that they owned, their possessions, their livestock, their livelihood, all of that had been decimated. On top of all that, their family members, their wives, their husbands, their children, their mothers, their fathers had been slaughtered. The population had been cut down to a fraction of what it was. It had been absolutely annihilated. And now on top of all that, they've been carried away into captivity, captivity in Assyria or captivity in Babylon. And it's tough for us to really even get our minds into the the worldview that they would have had as they're listening to this, but they would have come to the text of Scripture with an absolute loss of confidence. They had been in such a devastating um, uh, sort of cycle of destruction in their life. They had been through such a, such a, a world of turmoil that they had probably serious, serious doubts about everything they had heard from God's Word, everything they had heard about their standing with God, everything they had ever heard about His faithfulness and His plan and His salvation. Jeremiah had reiterated so many of these things. He had given them a a warning, uh, one after the other. He had begun his ministry during the time of Josiah, when Josiah was attempting to bring reforms across the nation, and yet they had resisted, they had turned away, they had refused to repent. And God had carried out His acts of judgment just like He had warned. And now they were having to grapple with the, with, with the consequences. It was a theological crisis now in their mind, though. It was a as a dilemma, if you will, in their spiritual worldview. Because God had declared a special love for Israel. He had set His favor on them, He said. He wanted to show them His his special kindness, apart from every other nation on the face of the earth. He had given them what He called eternal promises, unconditional, fully based on His grace, nothing to do with their personal works. He had given them these promises, and yet here they stood with a sense of utter rejection, a sense of pain, and a sense of darkness. And so the dilemma developed in light of all these realities. The question rose in their mind, had God indeed turned His back on His nation? Well, John, Jeremiah writes these two chapters to answer that question in resounding fashion. And the answer is absolutely not. Absolutely not. While God had to deal with them in a, a way of severe chastisement, that should not be interpreted to mean that he had completely abandoned them forever. He was not going to go back on his promise. He was not going to break his word. If he tore them down, it was simply so he could build them up. Now, if you have your Bibles, you can just flip back for a second to Jeremiah chapter 1, and you would realize at the very opening of the book, this is 
essentially the summary of Jeremiah's message. Jeremiah chapter 1, after the Lord, after he kind of describes how the Lord had called him, we pick up in verse 9 and we read, Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, uh, uh, to, to build and to plant. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, verse 12, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. This is exactly what happened throughout Jeremiah's ministry and throughout his days. This is exactly what God did. God uprooted. He plucked up. He tore down. He, he, he demolished. He completely obliterated Israel so that he could rebuild them. Now, Jeremiah 30 and 31 spells out exactly how and why he did all of this. And as I said, he does it with this series of nine poetic or prose sections, each one of them marked off by that introductory formula. And we've looked at the first six, giving them each separate titles as we looked into the details of each one so that we could understand why the Lord was doing what he's doing and how he's doing what he's doing. And you'll notice as we go through these, or we've been taking note as we go through these, that they come with a series of contrasts, contrasting Israel's current visible state, their current visible condition with a coming condition or a coming state that they haven't yet seen, which is very much a reality because of God's abiding promise. Now we saw, just to run through these really quick, from verses 1 through 4 of Jeremiah 30, we called it from ruin to restoration, where the Lord begins His promises of restoration. And then verses 5 through 11, which we called from panic to peace, where the Lord pictured the day when Jerusalem fell and then gives them a contrast of a day of peace is coming. In verses 12 through 17, from hurt to healing, where he talks about their guilt and how the, the, the wounds that they're suffering is because their guilt is great. And then in verse 18, all the way through verse 1 of chapter 31, we talked about the contrast from rage to reconciliation, how the Lord had spurned them in His fury, but He would draw them close to Himself. And then in verse 2 of that chapter, He talks about uh, the transformation from distant to dearest, even how they had been cast off far from God like previous generations of Israelites, but in verse 3 of 31, he declares, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I've continued my faithfulness to you. And so in verse 4, you see the words of promise, again, I will build you and you will be built, O virgin Israel. He's torn them down. He's destroyed them, but only so that he could rebuild them. And then the sixth poem we looked at last time in verses 7 through 14, from brokenness to blessing, from brokenness to blessing, pictures them how 
they would return one day with an attitude of weeping, an attitude of mourning, an attitude of brokenness over their sin to the point where they experienced the richness of God's blessing in the land. Well, all that brings us up to really the doorstep, if you will, of the new covenant. As we kind of spiral through those repeated themes down more and more to the very heart of the message. But before we get there, he gives us one other poem in verses 15 through 22. Let me just read this for us. And we will call this one from hopeless to hopeful. From hopeless to hopeful. Thus says the Lord, verse 15, a voice is heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There's hope for the future, declares the Lord. Your children will come back to their own country. I've heard Ephraim grieving. I've dis- you've disciplined me and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed, I was confounded, because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Set up road markers for yourself. Make yourself guideposts. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. Return, O virgin Israel. Return to your cities. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth. A woman encircles a man. Well, there's a lot in these verses. And those of you who know me know this has been a a focus of my own study for a number of years. Not only because of the rich theological truth that's here, but because of particular interpretive challenges and what it really teaches us about the way Biblical writers themselves viewed other parts of Scripture, the way they used the Scripture to teach us in the Scripture. And the poem opens with this scene, a scene of extreme despair with Rachel, the wife of Jacob from Genesis, weeping. And the language is intense. It's the language of a funeral. It's the language of lamentation. In fact, Jeremiah uses a term here that's used only seven times in Scripture, five times by Jeremiah himself. Really rare term, but it it particularly describes this this, uh, scene that you would find at a funeral where there is almost almost uncontrollable wailing. When in fact it is controllable because it was something that was often done by what's known as wailing women. Back in Jeremiah chapter 9, as a matter of fact, if you have your Bibles, you can flip over there with me. Jeremiah chapter 9, you see this very clearly because this is the other place where Jeremiah uses this word four times in a short span in Jeremiah chapter 9. He says in verse 17, 
of that chapter. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the mourning women to come. Send for skillful women to come. Now, what he's talking about here are these wailing women who were hired at funerals to come in when someone had died and to stand around or to stand outside and to bellow forth with these loud lamentations that could be heard everywhere. Now, the reason they did this would make a lot of sense to you if you've ever lost a loved one, because you may know that whenever you lose someone very close to you, there's a tendency in the beginning to sort of bottle up the emotions. Maybe it's because you're trying to get through the, the funeral service or, or all the events, or maybe it's just you haven't processed, but there's this tendency to not really let the emotions out, and the ancient people did not consider that healthy. And so what they did is they would hire these wailing women to come in in order to induce tears for the loved ones, to help them be able to cry, to help them be able to lament, because this was thought to be the best way to process the grief. And so he tells them here in verse 9, consider and call for the mourning women, send for the skillful women to come, let them make haste and raise a wailing over us that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water. For a sound of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are ruined, we're utterly shamed because we left the land, because we've, they've cast down our dwellings. Hear, O women, the word of the Lord, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach to your daughters a lament, each to the neighbor, to her neighbor a dirge, for death has come up into our windows, has entered our palaces, cutting off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. So this is the image that we have as we come to Jeremiah 31, 15. You have the image of a, of a woman who is as if she's at a funeral. And she's crying out with these desperate tones for what appears to be the death of her children. In fact, they're so intense are her wails that we're told that she cannot be comforted. She refuses to be comforted. The pain is too sharp. It's too deep. It's interesting, by the way, this is the same language that's used in the book of Genesis whenever Joseph... Uh, whenever Joseph is sold into slavery, his brothers smear his coat with the blood of animals and take it back to his father to deceive him into thinking that his son had been killed. And we read that Jacob was the one who wailed loudly. And the text says in Jeremiah 35, 37, he, or 37, 35, he refused to be comforted. So this is exactly what you see. This is what you would expect. Here's, here's Rachel, who we're told in the text, thinks that her children are no more, which also, by the way, is a word that Jacob uses whenever he describes Joseph in, in Genesis 42. He is no more. He's dead. He's gone. Here we're pictured with Rachel, if you will, receiving this news of the supposed annihilation of her own children. Now that much is clear. But what has perplexed Bible scholars through the years, what has risen, uh, raised so much debate is why Rachel? Why does Jeremiah use Rachel here? Clearly, 
he has in mind captivity. Clearly, there is an idea of, of Israelites being removed from the land. He says it in verses 16 and 17. This is how the Lord comforts Rachel by saying to her twice, your children will return. They shall come back from the land of their enemy. They shall come back to their own country. So clearly, the, the historical situation behind this is captivity. But what does it mean by using Rachel here? I mean, if, Jericho, if Jeremiah just wanted to give the picture of a grieving mother, uh, if he just wanted to kind of give us the scene of, of what that looks like, he could have just used a generic word for mother. As a matter of fact, throughout these two chapters, he's done similar thing already. He's used generic fathers. He's used generic mothers. He's used generic children. He doesn't have a problem using sort of generic terminology. But people have wondered then, why does he name so specifically this Old Testament character? Well, if you were to pick up a common commentary, what you may find more often than not is speculation that it's because of the location. Because she's pictured in Ramah, which was a town five miles north of Jerusalem, And uh, in the territory of Benjamin, it was a place where they gathered up all of the captives after the destruction of Jerusalem in order to ship them off into captivity in Babylon. In fact, Jeremiah, we're told in himself, in Jeremiah 40, he himself was gathered there initially before they released him. And so, so people see this and they conclude that this must be what's taking place. On top of that, they would say this must be the place of Rachel's tomb. She must have been buried in Ramah, and and so people were being gathered there, and Jeremiah is picturing them looking at her tomb and maybe kind of imagining that they're hearing coming out of her tomb the wails of this mother of Israel weeping over them as they're about to be carried away into captivity. Some people even speculate Because if you know the story of Rachel, she died in childbirth. She died along the road giving birth to Benjamin. And and she died with wails and she died with weeping. And so maybe she's pictured here still crying out in some fashion, in some form. Some people would even say that Jeremiah is picking up on ancient myths, that whenever someone died in childbirth, it would have been a, a common notion that that their spirit or their ghost would have haunted their tomb for years to come. And all of this kind of explains what Jeremiah is talking about. But there's major problems with that, that whole interpretation. First of all, Genesis does not say that Rachel is buried in Ramah. As a matter of fact, twice in Genesis 35, Genesis 48, it says that she was buried on the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem just a, a, a short distance from Bethlehem. Bethlehem, if you know your geography, is south of Jerusalem. Ramah is five miles north of Jerusalem. So there's no way to reconcile the two locations. So such an interpretation would be out of step with what Genesis itself says about where Rachel was buried. But second, there's a problem with the timing Because the people that Rachel is weeping over were not the people who were carried into captivity to Babylon in 597 B.C. It's not the people who were gathered in Ramah. 
It's the people who went into captivity 125 years earlier, 722 B.C. In fact, this entire section, as we've been noting in past weeks, the entire section going all the way back to verse 2 repeatedly is making emphasis on northern tribes. It mentions areas like Ephraim and Samaria, the hills of Samaria, all very clear references to the ten northern tribes of Israel, even here A little bit later, in verses 18, 19, and 20, you see Jeremiah again talking about Ephraim, which was the historic name for the northern tribes as opposed to Judah, who were the southern tribes. So whatever Jeremiah's use of Rachel is here, it isn't because she was haunting her tomb, and it isn't because she was just sort of generically weeping over kids going into Babylonian captivity. It's actually something more deep and profound than just that emotional response. Jeremiah pictures a sound coming from this city of Ramah, which was the the chief border town on the mountains between the northern and southern kingdoms. It was just on the north side, as I said, of the territory of Benjamin, sitting high atop one of the hills. And this would have been a place where people could have theoretically heard for miles this kind of sound. In fact, you may remember back in verse 6, we talked about this, how there were watchmen who would position themselves on the mountains of Ephraim and make calls out to one another because of the way that the sound would travel from these hills. So here's Rachel pictured atop one of the highest mountains that sat between the southern and northern kingdoms, in a sense, with a message that reaches across all of Israel. And she's wailing. But why did he pick Rachel? Why didn't he pick Leah? Why didn't he pick Sarah or Rebecca or just some generic mother? Why Rachel? Well, the reason is because of how Rachel's presented to us in the book of Genesis. Moses wrote this book of Genesis, and he did it in a historical narrative fashion. But you shouldn't mistake that to mean that Genesis is nothing but history. Genesis is infused with theology. In fact, it's not written like a typical biography. If you pick up a biography today to read about someone... What you would normally find is a a beginning with their birth, maybe a discussion of their rearing in their home and their family, and then maybe something about their education, and then their career, and then their sort of latter years or whatever it might be. That's the way you would typically read a biography, but that's not what you read in Genesis. We don't have entire stories of people's lives. What we have are selected events, events and and aspects of their life that were given to us for theological purpose. In other words, Moses gave us what he gave us about these people, not just so we could learn about them historically, but so that we could learn about God through how he worked in their lives. That's why all of them are given to us. And so when it comes to Rachel, Moses tells us a little bit of her background so we can understand her story. She's introduced to us as the first, excuse me, the second of Jacob's two wives. You may remember the story. He showed up 
there in uh, his ancient town in the home of, uh, of Laban. And he wants to marry his daughter, Rachel. And he makes a deal with Laban. He's going to work for seven years in exchange for her hand in marriage. And he does so, we're told, gladly. The, pa- the days passed quickly because of the love that he had for Rachel. Until finally the time was up and he demanded uh, the return on his investment of time. And so they threw a ceremony in which Laban tricked Jacob and presented instead of Rachel, her sister Leah. No doubt was able to carry this out because of the customs of the day and the thick veils that would have been over the faces of the brides. And in the dark, Jacob was fooled into marrying Leah instead of Rachel. Well, when he discovered the trick, already formally married to Leah, he demanded the right to marry Rachel, his true love. Laban gave him that permission if he agreed to stay another seven years. And so upon that agreement, a week later, he enters into marriage with Rachel as well. Now, that sort of sets the framework because what we're told as we move forward from there is throughout the rest of their days, the two women were marked by two burning desires. Leah's burning desire was for what Rachel had. Rachel had the love of Jacob, and Leah desperately wanted it all of her life. She named her children in all kinds of ways that reflected how desperately she wanted the love of her husband, which he really never gave to her. Rachel, on the other hand, wanted what Leah had. Leah had children. She had a lot of children. She gave birth to seven children to to, uh, Jacob. And yet, and yet, within her heart, she was yearning and always desiring to be in that same kind of position. She had the love of her husband, yet she was still so discontent because she didn't have what was her deepest desire, which was for these children. As a matter of fact, the first words you ever hear coming from Rachel's lips is in Genesis 30, verse 1. And, and by the way, this is just a sort of a principle when you're studying narrative passages. The first words you hear uttered by someone in a story are often the most important words that they will say throughout the entire narrative. So what are the first words that you hear coming from Rachel? We read in Genesis 30 verse 1, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. And she said to Jacob, give me children or I die. Now those become kind of the defining words for who Rachel is and what she's all about. She, at the very outset, represents a woman who intensely, intensely desires children. And throughout all of this time, she's lifting up her voice. We're never really told what her prayers were. We hear her speaking to her husband, but we're just simply told that she's lifting up her voice to God. Later on in the text, it talks about God hearing her voice. Or when she finally does conceive years later, Moses tells us that God listened to her and gave her a son. So without telling us explicitly, he gives us this implicit peek into her life that she's a woman who's yearning, who's crying out, who's pleading with God for children. 
She even names her first child Joseph, which literally means, may the Lord give another. So, so the name of her first child in itself is a prayer that God would keep adding to her children. This is Rachel. She represents a woman who intensely desires children, but at the same time is plagued by barrenness. In fact, she's one of several women in Scripture who are barren. She desired children for a long time, was not able to conceive. And so she falls in line with a number of other important women who were told about in Scripture. There's Sarah, of course, who had been barren up to the age of 90, then miraculously gave birth or conceived and gave birth to Isaac. And then there was, of course, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, who was barren until Isaac prayed and the Lord opened her womb. And then, of course, there was Rachel. And you go on in the Scripture and you find women like Hannah, who gave birth to Samuel, or Samson's mother, who eventually gave birth to Samson. And this whole idea of barrenness ends up becoming a very prominent theme as you read through Genesis. Now, when you encounter something like that, you're reading through the text of Scripture, you, you shouldn't be thinking, well, yeah, that's very interesting. That's quite a coincidence. Three women and three generations, all who couldn't conceive. It's not a coincidence by any means. It is God's sovereign, powerful plan at work in the lives of these three women to construct a theological point. You see, God gave us these individual stories, and Moses recorded the individual stories, not for the sake of pure history, not for the sake of our curiosity, but to teach us about God and to teach us about His plan. He made individual promises. He did individual work through each of these patriarchs and matriarchs to establish some important principles that help us understand the way he is going to work in the future for all of Israel. And certainly true when it comes to barrenness. We read about barrenness, and we shouldn't sort of take it as just some sort of moral message, as if this is encouragement for an individual woman who down through the ages may find herself in that same situation. The messages and the stories we read about barrenness in Scripture come to us to teach us something about Israel corporately, to help us to understand that God was going to do something in these women individually that was going to teach us how God was going to work corporately in all of Israel. In fact, whenever Jacob is renamed from Jacob to Israel, we already have a theological clue that whatever takes place in this man's individual life is going to be transferred corporately to the entire nation. And so what this takes place in the life of his wife, we understand that we're being taught something. And when it comes to the idea of barrenness, this is exactly the way the latter prophets would have read the book of Genesis. They would have understood that what they're reading here is demonstrating to them vital truths that Israel was to cling on to, to understand about not only their past, but their future. In fact, look with me for a moment back at Isaiah. I want to show you very clearly how this was established. Isaiah, you can look uh, beginning in chapter 49, Isaiah 49. 
In verse 17, he says, Your builders make haste, your destroyers, and those who laid waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes, verse 18. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather, they come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places, your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants. Those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell. And you'll say in your heart, who has borne these for me? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. Here's Israel, pictured by the uh, prophet Isaiah in exile and communicating or assigning to itself this, this notion of bereavement, this idea of barrenness. And you can understand it if you understand the way that the sort of Jeremiah worked itself out. Uh, throughout the book, he talks about how the population of Israel was going to be decimated. All the way back in chapter 6, he talks about how Israel was like a tree that was going to be cut down to its very stump. He says in Isaiah, nothing but the stump is going to remain. Absolutely lopped off. And this is what happened historically in Israel. Their population was annihilated. And the ones who were left were carried off into captivity. And so, it would have been very difficult for Israel to have imagined that the few dozen thousand people that were left in their nation would have ever been able to grow back into the millions that they had once been. But this is exactly what the prophet begins to tell them. Over in chapter 51, Isaiah 51, he tells them in verse 1, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from whom you were hewn, to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. He's referring, of course, to Abraham, who was 75 years old when the Lord called him. He had no children. He had no large family. He had no, no visible evidences to, to believe that the Lord would ever make a nation out of him. And yet, what happened? The Lord constructed this vast peoples from him. Over in Isaiah 54, Again, he brings up this image, verse 1, Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. So already, a hundred years before Jeremiah's time, already the prophets were reading this idea out of the book of Genesis. Barrenness wasn't just about an individual woman. It wasn't just about Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel or any of those people. Barrenness was about God's work within Israel. And the message was clear. If he reduces them down to just a single person, 
he's fully capable of restoring them again. This is the hope of this message. That though Israel was like the sand of the sea and have been reduced down to nothing but a remnant, still the Lord is able to raise them up again. Now Genesis communicates this. The prophets understood this. And then they in turn communicate this to their peoples. After they've gone into captivity, they want them to know. They want them to be reminded. They want them to look back. And they want them to hear the wails and the cries. To feel the emotion of what Rachel would have felt. To let them know that no matter what your despair is, no matter how dark and black and hopeless you think your situation is, it is not more hopeless than Rachel's. This woman who so greatly desired children, who cried out to the Lord for children, your situation is no worse than hers. Here she is, and her voice is weeping again because after her children have been born and have multiplied, they have been once again reduced down to almost nothing. And Rachel's perpetually crying out to the Lord again, desiring a multitude of children. This is all the truth that he brings to Israel, but also this vital truth, that children who were born to the barren woman had a very special place in God's plan, very special place in God's plan. doesn't matter if it's Isaac born to Sarah or if it's Jacob born to Rebecca, or if it's Joseph born to Rachel. God would take these people, Samson born out of barrenness, Samuel born out of barrenness to Hannah. God would take these chosen sons and use them in a special way to carry out his plan to deliver Israel out of her darkest days of doom. So in some ways, barrenness is the dark before the morning. It's, it's sort of the, the cloud that's going to clear to bring out the sunshine of the day. And what Jeremiah does in a poetical way is he brings all of that imagery without having to say most of it, but just by invoking this name. He's telling Israel, there's as much hope for you as there was for Baron Rachel. There's as much hope for you as there was for any hopeless person ever. All you have to do is have the same kind of faith, right? God may decimate you. God may tear you down. God may uproot you. His disciplining hand might be severe, but he has every capability and every power of building you up again. He has every intention, really, because of his promise to Israel of doing just that. He might reduce you down to one, but he will rebuild you into many again. Well, this is the story of Rachel, but it doesn't end there. It actually transitions in verse 18 to one of her descendants, Ephraim, who himself is grieving but in a different way. He's grieving because of his sin. He's grieving because of his rebellion. 
And it begins to introduce to us the necessary condition of what must take place before the Lord accomplishes this work of restoration for Rachel's children. And we'll get to that the next time we come together. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for your word. It is rich and deep, richer so far than we could ever imagine. We scratch its surface to understand and see just how much further we could dig. I pray, Father, that you would make us students of the word. You have taught us so much. You've given us so much. We want to read with understanding. And in reading that, Lord, help us to have hope in days of despair and darkness, in days even when we're under your disciplining hand, in days when you chastise us and rebuke us and strip us down, uproot us. And we always understand that it's only so that you can rebuild, so that you can plant, so that you can grow and bless us. We're so grateful that we stand under your new covenant under your everlasting love. So grateful that we can stand forever on those same promises that were given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, to David, to Jeremiah and to the children of Israel. We can stand on the blessings of your love. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.